Psalm 126. If you'd open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 126. The topic, the psalmist reflects upon Israel's tears of sorrow while in captivity and the subsequent joy of their release and return. The title of our message, The Best Tears of Our Lives. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, this gathering of saints. We pray for all those who have gathered this morning, whether indoors, outdoors, in parking lots, in cars, social distancing or not, masks or not. Uh, Lord, we just lift up the Church of Jesus Christ on earth and especially in the United States and especially in California. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would minister to your saints, that you would strengthen and give us boldness, Lord, in the Holy Spirit and that there would be uh, many coming into the churches, Lord, and uh, whatever capacity they're meeting, to hear the gospel for the first time and uh, go from fear to faith in these difficult times in which we find ourselves. They would understand that there is hope in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, do a work. Uh, You've done it for centuries, and we know you're going to continue to do it. We trust you to do it. And uh, in our own little assembly this morning, Lord, guide us through this wonderful passage. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Who can keep up with all the life hacks posted on the World Wide Web? Does your hotel room smell bad? Tape a dryer sheet over the AC unit and turn it on. Want to know if a battery is good or bad? Drop it on a table from about six inches. If it gives one small bounce and falls right over, it's still good. If it bounces around more than that, it's either dead or nearly dead. Tired of scraping ice off your windshield? The night before freezing temperatures, rub half of a potato over your car's windshield. Doritos make great kindling. Be careful, believe it or not, some things you read on the internet are not true. That goes for this life hack fail. If you need to change your phone, or charge your phone rather, excuse me, but there are no plugs around, soak an onion in Gatorade and your phone will charge once you plug it into the onion. Because everyone carries Gatorade and onions with them. Some hacks are obviously fakes. Are the batteries dead in your smoke alarm? Set out a Jiffy Pop popcorn. When you hear the kernels popping, it's time to get out. Worse than fails and fakes are life hacks that can be potentially fatal. No pan to cook a grilled cheese sandwich? Tip your toaster onto its side and grill the sandwich in there. Just make sure you have your fire extinguisher ready when you set the kitchen on fire. Now back to helpful life hacks. Here's one for you to have a greener thumb. Soak seeds in water before planting, especially larger seeds or those that are naturally wrinkled. Soaking speeds germination. Pre-soaking seeds is an ancient hack. It's hinted at in Psalm 126. In verse 5, we read, those who sow in tears. The psalmist is appealing to the familiar practice of sowing seeds and reaping the harvest as a metaphor. Sowing seeds in tears must correspond to some farming practice. It only makes sense if the farmers regularly pre-soaked some of their seeds. Just as a farmer pre-soaks seeds, so the believer pre-soaks his or her spiritual sowing for the Lord. The psalmist goes on to explain that the liquid for spiritual pre-soaking is your tears from weeping. But don't be discouraged. Those who sow in tears, he says, shall reap in joy. 
I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, pre-soaking your walk with the Lord in tears intensifies your hope. And number two, pre-soaking your walk with the Lord in tears increases his harvest. Let's take a look at our hope in verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, Psalm 126 commemorates the joy of Israel being released from their captivity to return to the promised land. It is one of the 15 travel psalms pilgrims sang on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the annual feasts. If any psalms elicited an emotional response, it would be these. Do any particular songs move you? I'll bet the answer is yes. National anthems, military anthems, maybe even your school's alma mater if you're feeling nostalgic. Secular songs, too, can elicit emotion. Little Jackie Paper loved that rascal puff. Brought him strings and sealing wax and other fancy stuff. A dragon lives forever, but not so little boys. Painted wings and giant rings make way for other toys. Buff the magic dragon, right? One gray night it happened, Jackie Paper came no more. Buff that mighty dragon, he ceased his fearless roar. That song tears me up every time. Made in the image of God, we are emotional creatures. Christians struggle with integrating emotion into their spiritual lives. One pastor put it this way, our emotions can end up at two ends of a spectrum. One is emotionalism in which we allow our feelings to interpret our circumstances and form our thoughts about God. This is putting feelings before faith. The other danger is a kind of stoicism where faith is rooted in theology but void of affection. This tendency removes feelings from faith altogether. While it is true that our emotions should not lead our theology, it is vital to our faith that theology lead to a deeper experience of God. Doesn't it stand to reason that songs of praise ought to genuinely move a Christian? And it is a good self-exam to ask if the songs to the Lord move you. If not, ask yourself why not and spend some time talking to the Lord. Verse 1, a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. The captivity of Zion the psalmist had in mind was most likely their years in Babylon. It was a doozy. In a series of three sieges, King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and, of course, Solomon's temple. Jews were taken to Babylon and held captive. Their captivity ended just as God prophesied it would. Jeremiah had previously predicted the captivity in Babylon would end after 70 years. 100 years before he was born, the prophet Isaiah called King Cyrus of Persia by name and predicted he would issue a decree to allow Israel to return and rebuild. Bible prophecy, wow, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Daniel was reading Jeremiah and came to the understanding that their captivity would only last 70 years. And then Cyrus was shown, we believe, uh, his name in Scripture 100 years before he was born. It's, it's incredible the way God's providence takes care of his people. We were like those who dream. Their release from captivity, followed by the decree of Cyrus permitting their return, that was a dream come true. We'd say they were living the dream. For those in Christ, Jesus has set us free from the power of sin and Satan and death. We're promised he will take us home. Unlike the Jews who returned to ruin, we're going to the new Jerusalem where Jesus is building our forever mansions. Verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. 
Somewhere in church history, someone thought it was more spiritual to be quiet and reserved, to speak in hushed tones in church, to wear your Sunday best, to establish tedious rituals. I'll admit sometimes evangelicals can cross a line and be downright disrespectful in church, but where is that line? All I can say is that we need to be led by the Holy Spirit. We can be too formal. We can be too casual. Maybe these will help. Jesus calls us his friends. He's our friend and he presents us to God the Father. It suggests a familial, healthy respect. Not overly formal or casual, but appropriate. I like to exaggerate things sometimes. I mean, can you imagine before dinner, uh, the, the uh, father, you know, in a, getting all dressed up, shower and cleanse yourself, get all dressed up in your best clothing, and your children walk down the hall with an incense sensor. Oh, yeah, potatoes. And uh, your wife comes out with them. I mean, think of formalizing. I'm not talking about a formal dining experience. I'm talking about a religiously formal experience. Uh, that's not a familial relationship. That that's, doesn't speak of friendship and father. Uh, and so keep that in mind. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. Simultaneously, the veil in the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the outer chamber was torn from top to bottom. It signified that believers have immediate access to God. And that means there was an end to the ritual approach to God. For centuries, they had had the ritual of the temple, uh, the tabernacle in the temple to approach God. And that was gone. This, the, the veil was ripped. It's gone. It's over. Think, too, about the Lord's Supper, the original one, the one before Jesus was crucified. Was it at all ritualistic? Just read the accounts of it in the Gospels. It was not a bit ritual. It was the Passover meal that Jesus was enjoying with his disciples. Why do churches try so hard to turn it into a ritual? Yes, it replaced Passover, but the celebration of the original Passover also had little, if any, ritual. Go back and read how they celebrated the first Passover. There's not much to it. It's very simple. Most of our ideas about Passover and the Lord's Supper are traditions that we have added. There's something in our nature that thinks that God uh, is offended if we act normal that we have to have a, a normal kind of a, a thing going on and we have to have a formal kind of thing going on. And there's a movement uh, that's been going on for years, um, especially among younger Christians and millennials. They're being drawn into more formal church environments because they feel God in those places with the incense and the candles and the chanting. You probably thought it was funny when Governor Newsom said you can't sing or chant. Uh, because, you know, who would chant? Well, a lot of people do that now. And, and so beware of ritualism. Psalmist mentions laughter. He didn't mean some crazy outpouring of what's called holy laughter that was uncontrollable. Do you remember when that was going around a few years ago? I think it started, I, I think it might have started in Canada, to be honest, but it ended up in Florida. And people would go to meetings and they would just, ha, ha, And, and that would be it. That would be the meeting. People are laughing and falling on the ground and holy laughter, you know, so I don't know. We try to get infants to laugh. We do it because their laughter is precious and contagious. So is the laughter of God's children on the earth. Don't you? 
I mean, we have contests. So who can get? Who can be the first one to get so and so to laugh? I'll tell you who the ugliest person. That's right, because he thinks it's an ogre. But uh, anyway, uh, and kids, it's so fun when children laugh, and it's fun when God's children are able to laugh. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. No one can discount the historic facts. Greater, more powerful empires subjected Israel. She survived them and thrives. Nations have tried to completely exterminate the Jews. They survived. God made unconditional promises to Israel, and despite their disobedience and disbelief, he preserved them, and he will save them in the end. All Israel will be saved, we read in Revelation meaning those Jews alive at the end of the Great Tribulation. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Psalmist makes it personal. In verse 2, he spoke of them. Here he says us. It's okay to make the Bible personal. In fact, I think it's a lot of fun. God so loved the world becomes God so loved Gene. What do you think about that? I'm in the world, I'm part of the world, and so are you. God is long-suffering towards, insert the name of a non-believer, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You could maybe use that in your evangelism, talking to a guy named Frank. God's not willing, Frank, that you perish, that kind of thing. Try it for yourself. And we are glad. I have a tough time understanding the meaning of glad. It's not a word I use very often. Its antonyms are sad, unhappy, and upset. Bottom line If I consider that my captivity to sin and Satan and death is actually over and that I'm going to heaven in death or alive, I have no good reason to remain sad or unhappy or upset. It doesn't mean we suppress our feelings. It means we process them through the lens of our spiritual truth. The Apostle Paul suggested something like this to the church in Thessalonica. Believers were dying. The fellowship was crying. Paul told them to not sorrow as others who have no hope. They were to process sorrow through the lens of hope, and they would bring forth a sanctified sorrowing. We haven't talked directly about pre-soaking thus far. The metaphor won't be introduced until verses 4 and 5. But we can extrapolate from what we've discussed that the pre-soaking we'll read about intensifies your hope. The hope we're talking about is the certainty of the return of Jesus in the clouds, to resurrect the dead in Christ, and to snatch away living believers. Do you feel strongly about that? Is that the hope that determines how you are living the dream as you wait? It ought to be the great motivator in your life, knowing that Jesus could come at any time. And then in verses 4 and 5, pre-soaking your walk with the Lord in tears increases his harvest. Human beings are the only biological creatures on earth that shed emotional tears. Tears of emotion are chemically different than those caused by wind or fumes or allergies. One scholar observed, the Bible has no fewer than 510 references to crying and uses at least 11 words in the New Testament Greek to describe crying. The New Testament highlights three times that Jesus wept during his brief three-and-a-half-year ministry. He cried a lot more as the man of sorrows, but these three are recorded. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus before calling him back from the dead. He wept over Jerusalem on account of the judgment that was coming upon it for the Jewish leaders having rejected him. And he shed tears when he prayed hours before his death by crucifixion. You most likely have read a devotional by F.B. Meyer. If not, you should look for titles he's written. 
F.B. Meyer explains sowing in tears in this typically illuminating sentence. It is well when Christian workers soak their lessons and addresses with the prayers and tears. It is not enough to sow. We may do that lavishly and constantly, but we must add passion, emotion, tender pity, strong cryings and tears. And tears are not always from pain. They can be from things like pity or compassion. Keep in mind we are talking about a gamut of emotions that can produce tears. Jesus put it this way to the first century church in Ephesus. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The church in Ephesus was doing a lot of sowing. You read, uh, most of you are familiar with those passages. They were doing all kinds of good works. Uh, outwardly, you would think it was the most effective church on earth. And so Jesus would say, hey, you're doing a lot of sowing, but there is no genuine emotion. It's not being pre-soaked with uh, waiting on the Lord. Let's say you have morning devotions. Have they become mechanical? On a human level, think back to when you first fell in love with your spouse and you were dating. Didn't you think only of your beloved and tremble when you were together? A Christian's entire time on earth is a betrothal. The honeymoon doesn't start until after we die or are raptured. So if you think, well, yeah, when I was first saved, I was really gung-ho, but, you know, the honeymoon can't last forever. You're not on your honeymoon yet. You're still in your engagement. If we're acting as if the honeymoon is over, Jesus went on to say, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. And so when you start to look for it, you see that there's a lot of encouragement to positive emotion in the scriptures, to passion and, and uh, these kinds of things in your walk with the Lord. Verse four, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Streams in the south is also an illustration borrowed from farming. Certain crops in the south depended upon the overflowing of rivers in order to irrigate. No overflow, no crop. The psalmist, representing all of Israel, was asking God to bless the land with abundance as he had done before the captivity. The returning Jews found harsh conditions. It was typical for invading armies to sow the fields with rocks to make planting difficult. So after they would conquer, they would uh, send their armies back in to grab big rocks and just put them all through the fields so that they would have to be removed by hand. The land had not been worked for 70 years. Now I want you to imagine coming home to your yard after a 70-year absence with no power tools. Now think about it. How long can your lawn go before your neighbors sign a petition? Or your trees that need trimming or whatever it is. I mean, imagine you go on vacation and you've got your house all buttoned up and nice and then you don't come home for 70 years. You're going to have some work to do. And it's going to be really, really difficult. And that's what these uh, returnees faced. But he says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. First generation of returnees were sowing after the tears shed during their captivity. Some of them undoubtedly wept as they were sowing tears of joy at once again working their own inherited land. I mean, it's hard to capture that emotion to think what it would be like uh, to be Israel and uh, to, to know that you're being disciplined by uh, God and to be in captivity for so long. And then all of a sudden, bam. You're back in the land, on your land. And yeah, it's tough and it's, it's difficult work, but it's what you've been praying for. Uh, it has to elicit strong emotion. 
This verse is a promise of God's faithfulness. Yes, they had cried an ocean of tears in Babylon, but now they were reaping joy. It was like the farmer pre-soaking seeds before sowing to reap a greater harvest. I wonder how many actually got the illustration while sowing before it was recorded in this psalm. You know, that they really understood that, hey, just like my sowing uh, is soaked, like these, you know, uh, seeds I'm casting are soaked in my tears. Uh, My walk with the Lord has been pre-soaked in my tears in captivity. I think it's a great illustration, but I wonder how many got it. God wants to speak to you. He wants to show you things in ordinary, everyday activities and situations. You've probably all experienced it. Maybe you pass it off a little bit because it doesn't seem profound, but but God, whatever you're doing, wherever you work, wherever you play, uh, whatever you see, not every single thing, but God wants to speak to you and show you spiritual truth in action. He takes what's happening to you and says, hey, this is like this. And it's, it's a precious thing, and so be listening for that. It'll help you uh, be more emotionally involved with the Lord. Verse 6, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. This makes the spiritual application. F.B. Meyer said, We must add passion and emotion and tender pity, strong cryings and tears to our sowing for the Lord. The work you do for the Lord deserves nothing less than your full heart, mind, soul, and strength. The result will be a harvest, a spiritual harvest. Now, maybe you're prone to thinking, I see no abundant spiritual harvest through my impassioned service for Jesus. And that's common, especially, you know, we, we're normal, average, commonplace Christians. I mean, as far as I know, none of us are having a crusade next weekend that's going to fill a stadium uh, or things like that. And we have a tendency to keep track of, of uh, and have as a metric, you know, bigger churches, bigger auditoriums, people who have a larger ministry. And so uh, there may be times when you think there's no spiritual harvest through my impassioned service for the Lord. In the parable of the sower, which is appropriate, obviously, Jesus addressed the question of yield. He said of believers, these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Now, if you're just reading that in context, 30-fold fruit doesn't make you a loser. I mean, Jesus said, you're going to go forth and you're going to sow, and some of you will have a 30-fold return, and some a 60, and some a 100. He didn't say, if you're only at 30 or 60, you're, you know, you're falling behind. We, we, you know, it wasn't like a sales thing. Hey, we need to get your numbers up. And so here's what we're going to do. Always be closing, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, That wasn't it at all. He's complimenting these believers. You know what? Some fields are more difficult. They really are. Uh, It can be used as an excuse. I know when I was in back in the, the title insurance business, whenever a salesman was doing lousy in their territory, it was just the tough territory. I mean, the territory was just rough, you know, and or it was something about the season. It was, you know, foggy and so houses weren't selling or it was too hot for houses to sell or that kind of thing. But some fields really are more difficult than others. I sometimes think those with smaller yield will have the greater reward for the difficulties they endured. You will have the appropriate sheaves when you stand before the Lord to be rewarded. 
And so just serve the Lord, be led by the Lord, let the Holy Spirit uh, minister to you, do it with passion, and let the Lord worry about the yield. He knows if you're in L.A. or San Francisco or Hanford or wherever you happen to be. And, and so, uh, you know, you'll be rewarded before his throne. And I, I really do think some people, uh, for whatever reason, they have it easier. No talk about tears would be complete without referring to Psalm 56, verse 8, where we read, Put my tears into your bottle. The tears of God's children are so precious to him that he preserves and treasures them as a costly liquid, or at least that's what this scripture says. Emotional tears are composed of water, salts, antibodies, and antibacterial enzymes. They also contain concentrations of stress hormones. So let me have a room here for a bit of speculation. Could it be that God distills the tears of your life into a single bottle that has the chemical composition of all the tears you cried. So he keeps track of your tears, each one of them. If the hairs of your head are numbered, right? Easier for God, some of you than others for God because he the tally. But it doesn't say that, you know, I mean, he still had to keep track of your hairs for your whole life. And so of all the things, you know, I know it's an illustration, but, you know, God, if God is that meticulous about your hair, which falls out, Think of your tears, each tear and its particular chemical composition, which might be slightly different from time to time. And at the end of your life, when there are no more tears, he can put that into a bottle. And that's your particular chemical composition. Each of our formulas would be somewhat unique, either a little or a lot different. And, and maybe it could be a fragrance made from tears. Eternity by Jesus Christ. J'adore by Jesus Christ. Eau de Jean, Ives St. Jean, or somebody sent me this morning, Gennaro number five. <laughs> so we'll have our own scent. I don't know. If it is a fragrance, something the Apostle Paul pointed out to the Corinthian believers is encouraging. This is from 2 Corinthians 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And, and so uh, you people who are into incense or herbal oils will understand this. Uh, God says you're a diffuser, that he uh, puts something into you and you diffuse it. And it's the gospel and your presentation of the gospel. And to some, it is the fragrance of life. Like, wow, eternal life. I want that. To others, it's a fragrance of death, a realization that they're perishing. Think of your function as a diffuser and think of your tears as heaven-scented. Infuse your walk with the Lord with passion, emotion, tender pity, strong cryings and tears, and then diffuse that as you just genuinely share your faith in Christ. 